<clears throat> Who cannot enjoy a rags-to-riches story? We naturally enjoy Cinderella-type stories in which the protagonist suffers abject poverty and humiliation, only to be suddenly elevated to fame and immense wealth by a sudden change of circumstances. Of all the rags-to-riches stories ever told on this fine earth, is there any one that is better, that tops the story of Joseph in Genesis 41? This is a true rags-to-riches account. It is as compelling a story as any fanciful fairy tale without, of course, the magic and the fairy godmother. In this account, the power that changes Joseph's circumstances is not blind luck or fate or the twang of a fairy godmother's magic wand. Moving behind these events is the providence of God who rules heaven and earth and works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. As we enter this chapter, Joseph is in rags. He has been left to rot in a subterranean Egyptian dungeon. Betrayed by his own brothers, he's been sold into slavery and ripped away from his beloved father, country, and culture. As a slave, he was framed, accused of attempted rape, and thrown into prison. Joseph is in rags. He is the victim of oppression and injustice. Hope dawns for Joseph in chapter 40 as two officials of Pharaoh, each having a revelatory dream the very same night, speak with Joseph. You remember that account. Joseph interprets the dreams for them. He assures Pharaoh's chief cupbearer that he will be restored to his position in three days, and in three days the dream comes true exactly as Joseph interprets. He establishes with these men that it is God who has sent this dream. It is God who determines the future. Joseph stands forward, proclaims the glories of God, interprets the dream, and then says in chapter 40, if you'll notice there at verse 14, remember these words. He says to the cupbearer, but when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a pit, literally, a dungeon. But we read the last verse of chapter 40, the cheap, cup, cheap chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. When two full years had passed. So day after day, Joseph waits as the best years of his life physically are drained away with the passing of time. However long he was in the prison prior to that time, we know that after the cupbearer's release, Joseph serves these two years there. To this point in the account, Joseph's life plays out like a maddening series of hills and valleys in which every hill is lower than the preceding hill and every valley is lower than the preceding valley. We can look at here at this chart and we remember this. Joseph rises to prominence among his brothers, but then he is sold into slavery by them. He rises in prominence in slavery and rules Potiphar's house, but he sinks even lower when he is thrown in prison. And here at the lowest ebb, he is a foreigner, a prisoner, a slave. And now, if it can get any worse, it looks like he will endure in this position for life. 
because now he is in this prison forgotten. We look, however, today at a rags-to-riches account. We find Joseph here in chapter 41, then, in the pit. He is in prison. He is in rags. But then one night, Pharaoh has a dream. Notice there at verse 1, when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came out of the Nile and stood beside those on the river bank, and the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the sleek, seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. There is through this account seven Uh, several Hebrew words, uh, or a Hebrew word several times, the word behold that is left untranslated. But it adds a vividness and drama to the dream report here, drawing the reader in. Look at this, look at this, look at this, the account continues to say. He is standing there, Pharaoh in his dream by the Nile. We need to understand from our perspective that the Nile was a source of life in Egypt. There's very little rain there in northern Egypt. And the crops were raised by irrigating off of the Nile River. So as the Nile swelled with river in the spring of the year, trenches would be dug. And from those trenches in that irrigation system, uh, life was sustained in Egypt. It was an amazing place because there could be drought in other places, but Egypt was just fine because it didn't depend upon water, but it did depend upon the Nile. Pharaoh stands on the banks of that river. And as he is dreaming, there are cows coming up out of the river. Now we might think of that as part of the fanciful part of the dream. Probably not. Cows coming up out of the Nile River would have probably been very commonplace as cows would have sought relief from the heat and from the insects going down into the water from time to time. Coming up and standing on the banks eating the reeds would also have been a very common sight there in Egypt. The nightmare comes with the next part where these ugly, uh, gaunt cows, they are withered and and emaciated. They're probably bones, their ribs showing, and they look horrible. It is these cows who come up out of the river and then do something very violent and very confusing. They eat these uh, these, uh, fat cows. Well, I'm sure that Pharaoh probably at that point uh, wakes up in a fright It was something that you wouldn't anticipate in a dream. He falls back asleep there in verse 5 and again had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. Let me just stop for a moment and say, don't think corn. If your translation reads corn, it's really really not the best translation. It should read wheat here. Corn, as we understand it, was not known in Egypt but it's a a word for wheat that's a general word. Some type of cereal grain is growing here. Verse 6, After them seven other heads of grain sprouted thin and scorched by the east wind. The east wind in the early fall and late spring, Egypt often suffers from withering winds. They even name these winds. I I think probably everybody on earth, or many people anyway, have, have a name for some kind of wind that causes great trouble. What's ours? Ours is tornado or straight-line winds. There's some type of phrase. They had a name for this, the Kamsin winds. They would blow in from the south, and they would dry everything up and scorch the uh, produce at times. 
the crops at times. And that is what happens here with these. Verse 7, again, this, this violent conclusion. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. <coughs> then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. Again, this is not the kind of dream that you forget about. You know how that is. You have a dream that's pleasing, something enjoyable, and you, you try to go back to sleep and dream it again, and it doesn't come back. It just doesn't come. You lose it. Or maybe it's a dream that you get up that morning, and it's inspiring in some way, and you want to stay inspired, and by the end of the day, you can't even remember what the dream was. It just Who knows how that happens and why, but it just kind of slips away. But the dreams that we're encountering here, these unique revelatory dreams in the book of Genesis that Joseph has and that uh, Pharaoh here has, also that the butler or the uh, chief cupbearer and the chief uh, baker had in the previous chapter, these are not those kinds of dreams that just slip from your mind. These are dreams that they knew were special. They were revelatory dreams. God was sending a message to them and they were convinced of this and they longed to have the dream interpreted. It lodges in Pharaoh's mind, knowing that it is of divine origin, he seeks to have the dream interpreted, and he has many to help him. Verse 8, in the morning his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. We're not told exactly why Pharaoh was troubled. Perhaps it was the imagery that was disturbing, the cows eating other cows. I don't, I don't know, perhaps the fact that the dream was so vivid just troubled him. He seems, though, to have some sense that there's a, a, a bad omen here. This is not good news, this dream, and that is probably what mostly troubles him. He's quite anxious to discover its meaning, so he contacts his court magicians. You see the phrase there, magicians and wise men. We're probably not to understand two sets of officials here, but one set. These are wise magicians. They are the same group of people. These would have been the most wise individuals of his court. This is Pharaoh's brain trust, the wisest of the realm. In chapter 40, an interpreter could not be found by the cupbearer and baker in Pharaoh's prison. Ironically, here in chapter 41, Pharaoh himself cannot find an interpreter in his own palace. No one can come up with the meaning of the dream. No one wants to stick their neck out and say that they know what it means. Then, verse 9, what an amazing word. One simple letter in the Hebrew text, but it is an amazing word. And on this word turns much in this passage, then. Then, at that point, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Read there, shortcomings is actually the word sin. I am reminded of my sins. I noted last week that the cupbearer has not so much lost the memory of Joseph as he has simply left him aside. He has forgotten about him in the sense of neglect. He just did not get around to mentioning Joseph to Pharaoh. And he acknowledges here that this is sin. Now the word sin, the Hebrew word translated here, uh, shortcoming, this word sin, can be translated numerous ways. But I think we might take it just in its straight-up sense that this man realizes he has wronged Joseph. He has been unjust to him. Why did God permit Joseph to suffer in that prison for two years, we ask at this point? Why does the man not remember for two years? Why does he not act 
upon Joseph and spare him? We don't know. But it would seem safe to say that Pharaoh realizes here that the uh, chief cupbearer is not, does not have some hidden agenda in which he is trying to commend Joseph. It might, be, it might have been a little strange for Pharaoh to hear from this man about Joseph three days after he got out of prison. It's very clear that he is not serving himself here in the, as the cupbearer mentions Joseph to Pharaoh. He recounts now his prison experience, which we have already considered in verse 40. Beginning at verse 10, Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. You'll notice that he always speaks of the king in third person. Now, he, doesn't, he never says you, because that would be seen as too familiar. So this is just typical Egyptian protocol. You speak, and you'll notice that Joseph will do the same. He'll speak to Pharaoh in the third person. Pharaoh did this. He put us in the house of the captain of the guard, that is, in the prison. Verse 11, each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream, and things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. He doesn't really mention who the other man was, but he just says, that guy is no more. The cupbearer says nothing also about Joseph's reliance upon God, which Joseph clearly established with him in verse 8 of chapter 40. But this will providentially allow Joseph to establish that very point to Pharaoh in a most dramatic way. At this point, the narrative turns, and we now are introduced to Joseph once again. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph. Pharaoh summons Joseph. And he was quickly brought from the dungeon when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Once again, Joseph is hauled up out of a pit. Remembering again here that the word translated dungeon is the same Hebrew word translated pit or cistern in chapter 40. So as he was hauled up out of the cistern where his brothers had put him, so he is hauled up out of this prison dungeon or pit and he is brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh's order is urgent, we notice here. His attendants quickly retrieved Joseph, but Joseph was in rags, so to speak. And as a Hebrew man, he was probably with full head of hair and full beard, as was the custom for Asiatic men. That would not have been protocol to appear before Joseph. Now, I've heard, maybe you've heard too, preachers and read commentaries where a lot is made out of Joseph's preparations here about how he groomed himself to, to be pleasing to Pharaoh, and with all due respect for that uh, thinking, I, I, I really have my doubts about that interpretation here. The wording of the text simply does not support the idea. The picture here is that Joseph is brought very quickly and immediately out of the dungeon. I, I've heard often that it get, got in the picture that Joseph stays in the prison, they knock on the door and say, listen, you, Pharaoh wants to talk to you, and Joseph says, yeah, in time, you know, and, and he, and he kind of whistles while he shaves in the mirror, and there and they're, they're looking at their watch saying, well, we got to get this guy to Pharaoh, we got to get this guy to Pharaoh. He's brought out of the dungeon very immediately, very quickly. I think really, I know it kind of wrecks a good story in, in some respects, but I, I think really no one would appear before Pharaoh 
uh, with full beard and, and not shaven. The Egyptians would shave all of their facial hair and their head hair, the men. And uh, I, I think he's just being prepared to meet Pharaoh in a way that would fit protocol. But we, this is what the point is. Not how Joseph is prepared to stand before Pharaoh, but the simple point that he stands before Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, in the, leading the most powerful nation on the planet. And in that culture, the reverence afforded the Pharaoh is beyond our comprehension. We think of Egypt, ancient Egypt, and the Pharaohs. What comes to your mind? You might think of the Sphinx. Well, you might think, how can we not think of the pyramids? The pyramids, the ancient tombs of the pharaohs, those pyramids are much more than just somebody's design. You know, they didn't have a contest, and one guy won the, the tomb contest for the pharaoh, and everybody liked it, so they kept building these pyramids. There's something going on there. Those pyramids come to a point for a very specific reason. The idea is that at that point, that is the nexus between this life and the realm of the gods. And at that, that point is really mirroring backwards the realm of the divine. So as you go up in the realm of the divine, there are more and more gods and there is a greater and greater realm, but it comes down to this one point where heaven and earth touch. And who do you think sits on top of that point? That's Pharaoh. He's the nexus. He's the connection. He is the man between the divine realm and the human realm. He is on top of the world. King of the mountain takes on a whole different meaning in Egypt. He sits on the point of the tomb, so to speak, in, in, uh, figuratively. So Pharaoh was like a god on earth to the Egyptians. Everything that he said was law. He could do whatever he desired to do. He ruled with absolute, complete authority. And Joseph comes to stand before this man. Think about that in terms of where he was just a few moments before. Hauled out of a pit, shaved, clothed, and now standing in the presence of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, verse 15, said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph obviously understands where Pharaoh got this information, but nothing needs to be said on that at this point. I cannot do it, he says. What a phrase. I, I imagine that Pharaoh's heart must have sunk a chill probably ran up his spine. What do you mean you can't do it? Joseph is setting Pharaoh up so that he can declare the glory of God to this pagan. I think Joseph has probably been thinking, if anything's going on while he's shaving, I don't think he's keeping Pharaoh waiting, but I do think he's thinking. And I think he is prepared to say, here's how I'm going to present myself. I'm going to tell him, no, I cannot interpret any dream. I cannot do it. Literally, not to me, says Joseph. It's not with me that dreams come or are interpreted. Verse 16, but God will give Pharaoh the answer that he desires. Joseph is careful to insist that God alone can reveal the future and empower his servant to discern that revelation. 
He will give to Joseph the answer he desires. The Hebrew there reads, God will answer shalom to Pharaoh. We know that word shalom, don't we? That word peace. He will answer peace to Pharaoh. It's a difficult phrase to to translate, but I think it probably just some idea that God will give you a sense of satisfaction here by giving you the interpretation of the dream. Now you see what Joseph's doing. He's drawing attention away from himself, but he's also sticking his neck out. God will do this. You notice... Pharaoh hasn't told him what the dream is yet. He has absolute confidence in his God that he will reveal the dream to him and he will share that with Pharaoh. Up front, he promises in a sense that he will interpret the dream through God's power. Pharaoh now recounts the dream beginning at verse 17. And one thing that I've certainly learned in the study of the text of Genesis is that there's no wasted ink at all. Matter of fact, sometimes it's maddeningly frustrating when you would like to know a little bit more. And, I, and I'm keeping a list of things I like to ask in heaven. That's, there's many of them that come out of the book of Genesis. Moses does not waste ink. Why now does he recount Pharaoh's dream? What we learn from places such as Genesis 7 and 8 in the retelling of the flood account, what we learn in a place such as Genesis 24 is that when Moses chooses to repeat information at great length, he's doing so to, in a sense, uh, send some flashing lights in the text for us to see. This is what we must get. This dream is the essence of this narrative. This is what matters. This is what is important. And behind all of this dream is the hand of God as he designs his purposes for his people. So Pharaoh recounts his dream. We don't learn anything really new here. But he says in verse 17, Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first, and even after they ate them, no one could tell what they had, that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dreams, I also saw seven heads of grain, full, of good growing, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads scorched, withered and thin, I'm sorry, sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none could explain it to me. Joseph, I'll admit to you, no one has been able to help me. I've asked the best Egyptian, I've asked the best that Egypt has to offer. I've appealed to my brain trust. Nothing. I don't know what this dream means. What a relief it must have been to Pharaoh when Joseph does not hesitate, doesn't start scratching his head, doesn't start getting all worried. He just starts to interpret the dream. Verse 25, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Joseph knows what he's doing here. He knows what he's, he is drawing attention away from himself as Joseph the great interpreter of dreams. That's not his presentation. He knows what he's doing. He is clearly establishing that God has this matter clearly fixed. We notice in Pharaoh's retelling of the 
uh, dream that he seems to emphasize the negative. And Joseph here is saying that you need to understand this is a negative message, but before we get to that, God is actively working his plan as the sovereign maker and ruler of the universe, and he has graciously revealed to you, Pharaoh, precisely what he is going to do. What Joseph is saying, without saying it, is that this God who rules the universe is my God, and I am in touch with this God. And Pharaoh begins to get the picture, verse 26, and we'll see that later. The seven good cows are seven years, says Joseph, and seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one in the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain, scorched by the wind, east wind. They are seven <coughs> years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. Ravage, the idea there of that Hebrew word is to exhaust, to destroy, to spend up. So the famine will eat up all that is left in Egypt. Now notice verse 32. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. A dream in twos. We see this dream in twos in various places in the book of Genesis. We've already talked about that to this point. But especially here in the, in the uh, referring here specifically to the life of Joseph. Joseph receives two dreams. These two dreams are basically one and the same. Then the baker and the cupbearer also have two dreams. Now, of course, it's each man having one, but they kind of work together. The positive and the negative, they're taking place in Genesis chapter 40, and we find two dreams. Here again, Pharaoh has two dreams, and Joseph interprets the meaning of these couplets of dreams. Sometimes dreams could come as a warning, and people would change from their course and repent of their sin, and God would relent of the, of the pending judgment upon the individual. Of course, many times dreams mean nothing at all, but that would be a possibility. But with these dreams, there's nothing here that will change. They have been set by God. They, it is a revelation of the future that is to come. God has fixed these events in His purposes, and this is the key to this entire narrative. And by that I mean not only chapter 41, but all of Joseph's life. God gives revelation evidencing what he will do in the future. And these couplets of dreams draw attention to the fact that God knows what he is doing and reveals it here to Joseph. And do you have room in your theology for this? Does this fit within your view of God? That God would fix a famine to devastate a land? God has the authority to visit severe natural disaster on a nation, and sometimes God chooses to exercise that authority. 
When we see a typhoon in the far east that wipes out thousands of people, an earthquake that takes out the lives of countless numbers of people, when we see a September 11th, when we see a tornado that wipes out a community here in our area, God is not sitting on his hands and confused and disappointed with what Satan has done. God has fixed a famine for Egypt of seven years, a devastating famine. God has that authority. We do not always know how he chooses to act and why, but we've got to have room for that kind of vision of God in our theology because that is the God that Genesis presents. And from this presentation comes all that the Bible says about God. Now at this point, a most remarkable thing happens. Notice what Joseph says next. He has established that God is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. These dreams are his revelation, and he will do what he has declared in this dream to you, Pharaoh. But notice what he does. Joseph is not done. Verse 33, And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Where did that come from? Joseph has really stuck his neck out here. He's been asked to interpret Pharaoh's dream. He has not been asked to tell Pharaoh how to organize his court, but that's exactly what he's doing. I think at least two things are happening here. Joseph, first of all, is pressing the point that God is in control and that he is God's spokesman. I'll not only tell you the interpretation of this dream, but I am also God's servant to tell you what to do about it in your realm. Secondly, I think what Joseph is doing is saying all those years of is, is realizing that all of those years of administrative labor kind of kick in right now, and he knows exactly why he's here and exactly what he's supposed to do. He has a sense of divine intervention, of the providential workings of God, and he responds to it. I know why I'm here. I've run Potiphar's house. I've run the, war the, the, prison, uh, the warden's prison. I'm here to run Pharaoh's house. So he just begins his work right here in front of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh probably stands there with his mouth open and his eyes wide as this Hebrew slave starts telling him what to do. Where was God when Joseph suffered as a slave in Potiphar's house? Where was God when Joseph languished in prison all those years? He was teaching Joseph to manage in combination, the resources of time, money, and people according to a perceptive assessment of present circumstances and a perceptive anticipation of future realities. That might be a confusing sentence, but time, people, money, managed with a perception of what's going on today and what is going to come in the future. God has gifted this man uniquely with administrative capacities, and he, at 30 years of age, is willing, is able to function as a chief official in Pharaoh's court. Now, I don't think Joseph's putting himself forward that way necessarily, but he is saying here at this moment, this is why I'm here, I'm here to shine. I've run people's court, houses for them before, and I will run Pharaoh's right now as long as he allows me to run it. So put a man in charge of Egypt to oversee this process 
Joseph says to Pharaoh. Verse 34, he's not done. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land and take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. So under this one commissioner would be various overseers throughout the land and they would oversee the taxation of the people as this grain would be brought in. Verse 35, then, they should collect all the food of these good years that are coming in and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. So there's kind of a threefold plan here. One commissioner, various overseers taxing the people, and the third part of the plan would be to store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in these store cities. Cities which archaeologists know existed in Egypt. They may not know exactly what all of the background is, but these cities are clearly defined in Egypt to this day. Well, verse 37, we see the hand of God. If you can't see God in verse 37, you can't get the passage. It just makes no sense to you. He's here. He's steering. Pharaoh at this point could say to Joseph, listen, young man, I don't know who you think you are, but there's a gallows waiting with your name on it. Get out of here. You're not going to tell me what to do in my court. But what does the text say next? Pharaoh, verse 37, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. Absolute monarchs can be very small people. Pharaoh shows great heart here, and he listens to what Joseph says, and he says this man has wisdom from God. It seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his officials. No one is arguing here. Verse 38, so Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? And the court is hushed. Turn the circumstances a little differently and they've all been jumping up and down, raising their hand. Pick me, pick me, pick me. Nobody says a word. They have been silenced in their folly before this man of God. No one says anything. Could possibly a wiser man be chosen? Pharaoh says then, verse 39 to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as as you. You shall be in charge of my palace. And all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Wow. God has made all this known to you, verse 39. I think probably Pharaoh means there these dreams, but something more than that. I think he probably also means the administrative plan. You are under the hand of God. The Spirit of God rests upon you. I don't think that's a statement that Pharaoh understands the uh, Trinity, certainly. I don't think that it's a statement that he is acknowledging the rulership of God, sovereign alone as the only God, but he is saying there's something unique about you. We have here in the NIV a small s at verse 37 and a capital G. Maybe it should be a capital S. Maybe both should be small. Small s, small g. I don't know exactly what Pharaoh means, but he knows this man is unique and that there is divine activity in his life. And so no one greater can be found to rule Egypt. 
Joseph is clearly seen as superior in wisdom to the wise men of Pharaoh's court. In verse 40, can you, I, 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 it would, how do you understand these words? How they must have hit Joseph as he stands there and looks at Pharaoh, I was going to say looks in the eye of Pharaoh, that's America. He probably didn't look into the eyes of Pharaoh, but he's listening to Pharaoh's words and he hears Pharaoh say, you shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Kind of interesting phrase there in the Hebrew, it reads, they will kiss your mouth. It's not in a literal sense. I think it's translated appropriately here. That means they will submit to his orders, but it means that everything that Joseph said would be as sweet to them. In other words, there would be no resistance. What he said would be obeyed throughout the whole realm. He had run Potiphar's estate. He had run the warden's prison. Now he would run Pharaoh's palace and, in fact, rule Egypt as second in command. So Joseph starts this day in prison. He ends it prime minister of Egypt. He starts the day managing prisoners in a dead-end job. He ends the day ruling a powerful nation. He starts the day owning nothing. He ends it a wealthy man. In one day, from rags to riches, and the dreams that seemed so obscure and impossible were suddenly beginning to take shape. But we sense in this man that that's no confusion. He doesn't know God's timing, but he does know that God honors his word. If you'll give me a few more moments as we consider and apply this is a rags-to-riches account, but this is no Cinderella-type fairy tale. This narrative is, in fact, a tutorial on how we are to interpret our world. We are to interpret our world as we see Joseph interpreting his world. We're instructed by Pharaoh's dreams, by Joseph's interpretation of those dreams, and his meteoric rise to power, that this universe is not run by Lady Luck by magical powers, or by fairy godmothers that show up on occasion. It is steered to its ordered end by the hand of a sovereign God. Pharaoh could have dismissed the notion of a Hebrew slave instructing him. He could have angrily hung Joseph for instructing him on how to reorganize his administration. But we are reminded that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he steers it wherever he chooses. God designs a bitter famine to plague Egypt, and yet he moves in his grace to preserve Egypt. God is moving to preserve a pagan nation that is in rebellion to him. Why? Because God is in the universal realm establishing his mediatorial kingdom on earth. In other words, he steers the nations of the world like massive elephants in order to serve his saving purposes for Israel, his chosen little lamb, amidst those great nations and powers. Egypt will supply the grain. Israel will bring the revelatory light of salvation to the nations. This is God's plan. 
For one moment, the story of redemption then hangs on the thread of one man in prison and then one man standing before Pharaoh, and that man delivers. Centuries later, another pagan king would issue a decree of taxation, his purpose to tax his realm and thus to supply his army. The purposes of God, however, were to steer the hand of that king so that Messiah's prophesied birth would take place in Bethlehem in the territory of Judah. And on that night of Messiah's birth, redemption's plan would again hang from the thread of a single man put where he was by an unsuspecting pagan king and an all-wise, all-powerful God. God providentially moved Joseph to Egypt by means of human betrayal, kidnapping, slavery, by means of false accusation and imprisonment. He brought this man to meet a man who knew Pharaoh. And in the perfect moment of time, Joseph stood before the throne of Pharaoh. Where was God while Joseph pled for mercy in the cistern while his brothers ate lunch? Where was God when Joseph languished in slavery and was accused of rape? Where was God when the best years of Joseph's life ebbed away in a dungeon? Had God lost track of Joseph's paperwork on a busy desk? Did he kind of click his fingers and say, yeah, Joseph, i got to get after him tomorrow. I've left him in there a long time. How foolish. We see this in the Genesis accounts. God was right there with Joseph in prison. He stood by his bed at night as he pillowed his head and thought of his homeland and wondered what God was doing. He walked alongside of him as Joseph fulfilled his responsibilities in that prison day in and day out, the drudgery of it all, the lack of freedom, the confusion. God was there. He was there cheering Joseph onward. And as I re referred last week to the comment of Bush, he says this, God only knows what degree of trouble is necessary for His people or how long it is proper you should continue under its pressure. God knew what He was doing with Joseph. He knew how He had to hone him and make him capable to stand as an effective administrator before Pharaoh in his court. For Joseph, it was 13 years in slavery and imprisonment. For Moses, it was 40 years in anonymity on the backside of the desert. God has his ways, he has his plans, and he has his timing. What had God been doing with Joseph? Very much. Mentioned some things, but let me delve in just to, to a few more. I think of what God is doing. And this is what I want us to see. We must see as we look at this. God is in control. He is in sovereign control of the affairs of mankind. He knows what is coming ahead, and so he can reveal in dreams what is coming ahead. He is plotting his course. He knows his design. He knows where he's taking his people. But in all of that, God loves his people individually. He loves you individually. And he's doing something in the circumstances of your unique situation in life to do something with you. What has he done with Joseph? Just a few thoughts as we close, 
and we could go much further. But let me say this. Joseph had come to understand the workings of divine providence. It was not just an intellectual concept in his head with which he was grappling. He had come to understand the providence of God and he had come to know how it works. By that I mean this. You notice that in his speech he says that God is in absolute control. But what does he do with his actions? He rolls up his sleeves and says, let's get busy. God is in control of the future. He knows what is going to happen. Now we've got work to do. He understood how providence works. You trust the hand of God implicitly in all things and you work your tail off to bring about what God wants to bring about. He recognized in the words of Von Rod that the fact that God has determined the matter, that God hastens to bring it to pass, is precisely the reason for responsible leaders to take measures. That's a fancier way of saying to work your tail off. That's why I don't write commentaries. These guys write better. That's it. We know God's in control, and we work with him, laboring together with him. Joseph had learned the virtue of forthright confidence in the face of power, secondly. First of all, he learns to understand how providence works. You trust God, you work hard. But secondly, he had learned the virtue of forthright confidence in the face of power. There is an evidence of true character here. Joseph in prison. You can begin in depression to start looking at yourself as very small and unimportant and begin to pity and feel sorry for yourself and you come out a smaller man. That could very easily have happened to Joseph in prison. He doesn't come out a smaller man. He comes out of that trial and he stands before Joseph and Pharaoh and he says, here I am. And if it was America, he would have looked Pharaoh in the eye and with confidence would have faced him. And why is that? I believe that's a character trait that we find in people who do not fear man but fear God. And I know as I sense this, the weaknesses of my own heart and my own spirit, what would I do if I stood before the president? Would I have the confidence to speak about the glory of God? We know and we sense if we're in Joseph's position, our weaknesses. Joseph faced the man and he spoke. And I, maybe just a point of, of far, I know, a field and a sideline, but I think there's a connection here. I know that this does not all result simply from Jacob's training of Joseph, but parents, there's no substitute in training your children to have character like this. There's no way that it will be accomplished unless we lead our children to fear God and not man. And your children will fear God if you just let them do whatever they want to do. They won't have the confidence to stand before others. They should be able to look in the face of anyone and respectfully, confidently speak the truth in love. And I mean anyone. They should be able to look to someone who is far lower than them in status, so to speak, and speak to them with love and respect. And they should be able to look into the eyes of someone who is far above them in superior in authority and look to them with confidence and respect. 
That will not happen. There's no shortcut there. We know it's in all of us. This temptation to cower before authority and power and wealth. To become bumbling idiots before someone who has more wealth and power and strength than we. It's fought at this level, the fear of God. Joseph feared God and so had no need to fear the face of any man on the planet. Pharaoh thought he sat on top of the pyramids, on top of the world, but Joseph knew the God of the realm beyond. Pharaoh was just a man. God was God. What a great challenge there is for us there. Thirdly, Joseph had learned patient endurance under the weight of unjust suffering. We've said much of this, and I'll just go quickly, but the words of Job are of one thread with the experience of Joseph. Job chapter 23 could have been said, could have been put, I believe, in the words of Joseph. Job 23 and verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept on his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. Joseph's experience was in line with Peter's words in 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. When suffering is handled properly, it strengthens and deepens a person. When suffering is handled improperly, the results are never good. Addiction, bitterness, unhappiness, retaliatory spirits, jealousy, and the list goes on. I was part of, an, of a church for some time where there was a tragedy in our midst. There was a young man who was something of a leader in the church and great tragedy that affected his life. And I remember being drawn aside as the church tried to deal with this very horrible situation. And I remember one of the pastors counseled to us in a group that this was hard, but there was a ray of hope in this whole situation because God was going to make and mold this man under this anvil of suffering. And we needed to pray for him and see what God would do with his life. It was good counsel as far as it went. It missed one point. That man had to respond. And he didn't. He never became any stronger or better or deeper. Though he suffered deeply, nothing happened. In fact, he went downhill right before our eyes. The suffering ate him alive because it revealed a lack of confidence in God and his sovereign purposes. Joseph had learned in the spirit of Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your request to God. 
And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We want to see what suffering can do. We could go to 2 Corinthians 12 and see what it did in the life of Paul. But it has to be handled. Suffering isn't going to help anyone if it's not handled with a view to a God of sovereign rule who loves infinitely. Number four, Joseph had learned to live as a testimony for God in a pagan world. He was in the world, but he was not part of it. That's a fine line to walk, isn't it? Joseph's confidence was in God. He did not fear to speak of God's power, even to the Pharaoh. Like Daniel, Joseph did not hesitate to accept a pagan name. I think there's some, some Christians who they'd argue about that point. You're not giving me a pagan name. Joseph and Daniel both said the same thing. You can call me whatever you want to call me. That's fine. They did not hesitate to accept pagan style. They donned the clothes. They shaved the head. They did whatever the style indicated. Now, obviously, that necessarily wasn't in violation of God's will. There's no immodesty involved there, but no problem with that. They wore the clothes of the people of their place. They had no problem working in a pagan environment with unbelievers. And we're going to find out next week that Joseph even accepts an Egyptian wife, the daughter of a pagan priest. Now that's a different day. We can't parallel that to this day. And it would have been understood that she was part of his faith and his life. They didn't have problems with these things. Joseph knows that Egypt does not control the world. I think that's the key. And that's so often where Christians get into trouble when they're in the world and part of it because they begin to look at the world order and Satan's control as all important. Joseph and Daniel never forgot something and that's that God controlled the world. So call me what you will. Teach me what you want. I'll work with you and I will supersede you in my efforts to accomplish good for the kingdom I'm in but I serve a higher king. And I serve a higher kingdom, and don't you ever forget it. In the world, but no part of it. And how Joseph points us ahead to the, to the Scriptures in the future. We see in Joseph the epitome of Israel's history herself. Not only does he parallel key leaders such as Moses and Daniel who suffer from oppression in a foreign land and are all elevated to great power, but he also anticipates the bondage of Israel in this very land of Egypt and one day her freedom. Far more importantly, he anticipates, I think, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the ultimate rags to riches story, isn't it? Or I guess to put it rightly, riches to rags to riches. Born in poverty in a stable. We read in Philippians 2.10, Philippians 2 in that section, that God has highly exalted him and that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. 
And if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, there is a rags-to-riches story being written about you. We will all experience this. It may not be in this life. But we are coming to a new realm and a new world where Jesus reigns. We will be given a new body. This rag will be exchanged for a glorious body. And the rags of our human sin will be left behind and we will be in the presence of God free of all sin. Keep clinging to the dream, Christian. Walk in hope. The day is coming. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Joseph. We thank you that we can, in some sense, find our own story in his life. We long, dear God, for the day when the sufferings of this present world will no longer compare with the glory that will be revealed in us. God, hasten that day. Bring it about. We are falling apart physically. Our days on life are short. But we look forward to a day when you will draw us from this pit and will bring us into your glorious presence. God, what joys await us. We will not stand before a fallen pagan king. We will bow the knee to the king of the universe, our creator, our God, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as your people, you would help us to understand your providential rule and to get busy deepening under the trials of life that you bring. God, for anyone that knows you not as Savior and Lord, that they would put together the pieces of this puzzle and realize that it all centers on the work of Jesus Christ, crucified to provide the forgiveness of sin and resurrected, living today in conquest and victory over all things. God, work in our lives, we pray, that your word might take root and might change us as our prayer and our cry. In Jesus' name, amen.